0: Hi, I'm Megan Z, and welcome to Clinic Ally, the show where we talk about neurodivergence, counseling, and clinician perspectives. Our focus is how to support our loved ones and ourselves. Let's learn how to work together and be Clinic Allies.
1: Hello, and welcome to the first episode of Clinic Ally. I'm your co-host, Holly Sharp, here with Megan Z. Megan, tell everybody what we're going to talk about today.
0: Well, thanks, Holly. Uh, Actually, today we are going to talk about what autism is. Um, You know, we see a lot of cases of um, autism spectrum disorder here. And so we want to talk about more about um, what the autism spectrum is, why it is a spectrum and the ways it can present. Um, Mostly the basics for getting to know more about autism. Fantastic. And we have
1: some guests with us today. We have Dr. Megan Crisler, psychologist here at Silver Linings Neurodevelopment, and also Miriam Gardner, a counselor here.
0: So um, the first thing that we want to do is just to talk about, um, you know, what is autism? Why is it, why does it present the way it does? And why is it such a broad spectrum? Um, I think a lot of people get confused about you know, the different ways it can kind of present itself. People get surprised with those diagnoses. So how would you describe what autism is, period?
2: Okay, so that's that's definitely a broad question and it's one that we get asked a lot. At At its core, autism is it's considered a neurodevelopmental disorder and it's really marked by two key symptoms. One is a difference in social communication patterns, so In other words, the way that I'm using my words to communicate meaning and to understand the meaning that other people use with their language. So you have the social communication difference, but then a second core feature is some pattern of repetitive behaviors, restricted interests, sensory processing differences. So when we're diagnosing and testing, we're looking for symptoms in both categories, but not just symptoms. We're looking for a lot of symptoms. We're looking for clear patterns within both of these domains. So it's not enough just to have one or two features of each. We need to have a clear pattern of differences.
0: One of the ways, one of my favorite ways that I've described it or like thought about it when I'm talking to parents and other people is that it's not like a line, not like one end, maybe you have very few symptoms, the other end you have a lot. It's more like, um, like a dial or a pie chart. Mm -hmm. So instead of like, I have one kid that I work with, one client who he has really strong social skills. He still has a social communication delay, but compared to his sensory skills, which are like the sensory stuff really impedes him from being able to, um, interact with others appropriately. It kind of changes that pie graph looks a little bit different for him than it would somebody else. Mm -hmm. So like how much those things are affecting, it doesn't mean it's, not there, it means what the intensity is of each different piece. Yeah,
2: and, that, yeah, and I like that. I like that, that description. Another way that I think about it, and I think thinking about these, um, these similarities, I think sometimes can be helpful, or metaphors really, is if you think about a rope and how many threads it takes to make a rope. You may have five pieces of string that actually are part of autism, but five pieces of string do not make a rope. You've got to have tons of threads that really work together and fit to sort of create that, that, that rope or the pie chart, you know, analogy too. What would you
1: say <clears throat> to someone that didn't know much about autism or was concerned that their child may have autism that primarily presented you concerns about oh, my child has meltdowns or they cry a lot or they throw a lot of tantrums because that seems to be a misunderstanding. I hear a lot when there may not be other social or communication issues, but there's a lot of behavior.
2: Right, I think that's a loaded question. You probably hear that in counseling quite a bit. Um, I would have, my immediate thoughts are what's going on in the environment? What has the developmental history been like? Um, because there's an aspect of, of trauma and stressors in the family that can cause such meltdowns. Uh, we also have to consider the age of the, of the child because sometimes this is part of natural development, and some children do just have higher levels of these, of these tantrums and outbursts. So it's, it's definitely a metric, and you have to consider it in combination, almost looking at the pie chart. You know, what other features do we have?
3: I just learned about the pie chart metaphor about two years ago, and I'm only two years in the licensure, so this is all very new for me. But I think it really helps because every patient I have, they're all so different. And of course, there are some similarities and themes among those patients, but they're all individuals at the core of it. And I think that's really important to remember because I remember when I was younger looking at autism, it was so labeled and we had a very specific definition for it but that has changed so much, not only for me as a professional, but also in the mental health community.
0: Yeah, they, I like that saying where if you meet one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Yeah, Like you, you have not met every person with autism. It presents so differently, even just between like, you know, boys and girls, how they're diagnosed versus, <clears throat> excuse me, versus, you know, just the different ways it can present entirely
2: and i think these different presentations it makes it can make the diagnosis hard and it's even made the research field a little difficult to interpret because certainly over the past 20 years our even the labels that we use to diagnose autism have shifted so dramatically that you know what we used to diagnose as asperger's you know we don't we don't even use that term anymore now it's just autism spectrum disorder and the research is starting to really talk more about profound autism and you know, we're trying to categorize it as best we can, but ultimately we don't have a lot of long-term research that consistently uses all of these terms, Mm -hmm. which makes, you know, in a clinical setting, it makes it really difficult also to sort of understand how autism presents so differently.
3: So I have a question. How do you explain to someone who maybe previously got an Asperger's diagnosis when that term is no longer used, but you still have the same experience, how would you frame that conversation?
2: So I frame that in terms of, I literally lay out what happened in the research world. I explain the process and why those labels were taken away. And ultimately, when you, when you look at the research studies, it's, it's no one person's fault, but essentially the lay practice, you know, people in the community we were using different definitions from people in the research world and then people in the research world were also using different definitions and they did a handful of really large studies that showed that the label you got really depended more on the clinician you saw and the individual clinic you saw them in rather than your individual symptoms. So I, I like highlighting that because it really does bring into focus that it's not that your symptoms have changed or our understanding of autism has changed. Our definitions were bad from the start. And we weren't the best at phenotyping autism, and we still aren't. And so I think the researchers really took accountability for some of that and said, you know what, if we cannot get this straight in our research and even in our discussions, let's call it one label, and from here we're going to start trying to phenotype these things out a little bit better, and that's what they're trying to do. Um, But it's just we had bad labels previously, and it's not – when they grouped everything into one, they weren't trying to disenfranchise, you know, any one group of people with milder or more severe autism. It was, they were just trying to take better accountability of the science. That makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah, my, um, I think my cousin was diagnosed several years ago. And so she describes herself as having Asperger's. Um, I don't know if that's the diagnosis they gave her, or if that's the label she feels more comfortable with, um, with that. I know there's a lot of different labels and, things that come along with autism not just from the clinical perspective but also the autistic community um which they prefer autistic but we've always been taught within our field people first people with autism that we refer to them first and now we have this community of people that are aware of their symptoms that have been through some of they've been like basically the guinea pigs of this early research and studies and they're kind of communicating more with us now about you know how some of those things affect them what they feel comfortable with
2: yeah, and I think, you know, one thing that I do communicate to people you know, when we're talking about autism, especially if it's somebody who was diagnosed a few years ago, or even somebody who has self-diagnosed themselves, I will often find myself asking them, what terminology are you most comfortable with? Because, because some people really do prefer, you know, to be called autistic. Some people prefer Aspie. Some people have all of these different terms. And even calling, you know, somebody without autism neurotypical can be offensive to some. So I think that, we you know, if somebody really does identify as having Asperger's, you know, I will tell them, you know, use that. You know, and, and so many of the resources out there, despite the miscommunications, like if you find a pick up a book on Asperger's syndrome in girls, I'm I'm gonna be cautious as I say this, but a lot of the information in there might actually be pretty accurate, even if the terminology is a little off, because the the standard understanding of Asperger's was high IQ autism. And most of the time when people use that term, that's what they're really referencing, even though that wasn't the research-based definition, so.
1: I wanted to piggyback off what you were talking about when you mentioned about different clinicians might even have different impressions of whether or not a client has autism or what type of autism or uh, category they might fall into so um i know here even locally there are a lot of differing opinions among diagnostic clinicians about how to identify autism and i know you feel very strongly about using specific tools autism specific tools could you tell us more about what would you look for or advise someone for an appropriate accurate autism
2: diagnosis that is an excellent question so i look toward what it, what has the research really determined to be the appropriate method and so we've got we've got a handful of studies that really that really detail this so the ados 2 is the primary measure that we use and it is the most heavily studied empirically based evidenced across multiple sites multiple studies tool for diagnosing autism in early 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 young babies all the way up through adults does it have its flaws and faults absolutely but it is the most heavily researched tool you want to find a tool that has been looked at by more than just its creators and there are some other tools out there that are being used right now even in schools and things like that the only people who've really cross-validated it are the actual researchers The ADOS-2 is not that way. It's been looked at by a number of different people. So you want a measure of autism, which the ADOS-2 does, but the ADOS-2 will also tell you this is not meant to be used in isolation. You have to take into account the developmental history, so you've got to have a good clinical interview. You've got to take into account what are the social patterns of this child in other environments. So you've got to have measures that that ask for reporting from parents, teachers, you need to look at the cognitive development, so IQ scores as best as you can, because you wanna make sure that you're not missing another developmental concern, there may be another genetic issue, you wanna meet with the child, you wanna watch how they play, because it may not be autism, it might be a deeper genetic disorder that's gone, you know, overlooked. So looking at all of these different things, you wanna see a measure of autism, environmental evidences of, of social reciprocity, cognitive abilities, developmental history, those are kind of the key pieces. And so I do see some people being diagnosed with just a 30-minute observation and interview, and there's nothing standardized about that. And so that's that's where my concern comes. It just becomes an
0: incredibly subjective Absolutely. measure. Yeah. Yeah.
1: When a parent is meeting for that initial consultation with a diagnostic clinician, and they have a concern of autism, what would you recommend... What questions would you recommend that our audience ask to determine if that clinician is the right person to investigate autism? What do you look
0: for in, in a psychologist? Yes, <laughs> yes.
2: Yeah, I would look at their training history. I would, And I have had patients ask me over the years, parents ask me over the years, you know, what was your training like for autism? So, you know, tr- I'm highlighting the ADOS-2 pretty heavily because that is our primary diagnostic measure. And the authors, the trainers will tell you that a two-day training session is not sufficient. You are supposed to be trained in the measure, yes, read the manuals, have somebody oversee you, but then you're supposed to be heavily observed for a period of time. And I would want to know that somebody did graduate level training specifically in autism, specifically on the diagnostics. Um, simply checking, you know, a. a list saying, you know, yes we've met all five DSM-5 criteria, they have autism just based off observation, that's not sufficient. Even research, people who have devoted their whole lives to researching and evaluating autism, they will tell you that, you know, even within, if we do the ADOS-2 perfectly and we do everything else perfectly, we've got plenty of kids where their diagnosis is a discussion. And it's not, it's not easy. To determine autism yes or no even after you've done these thorough evaluations so simple observation it's just not sufficient
1: I think that's great information for parents to know um, I think I've talked to parents who have a difficult time even trusting doctors and clinicians because they may have been told different things or maybe sufficient assessment wasn't done or the clinician sort of took a look at the Kiddo in the waiting room and gave an opinion. And, um, you know, diagnoses are used to unlock insurance coverage for medical therapies. And I think it's important that parents know what to ask for and what to look for, and if what they're getting from a clinician is really sufficient.
2: Another piece to point out, too, and a question I would have is, you know, the, and this next piece is really hard to do in private practice, is that the The gold standard approach to testing and diagnosing autism, all of the experts will agree that best practice is to involve a team of clinicians. I have in the past diagnosed purely on my own. Um, I was the only clinician involved. Is that the absolute best way to do it? No, but sometimes in the private practice world you're, you're limited. You know, I know within our office, we do a lot of work trying to talk to each other about, hey, what did you see in this person? You know, tell me about your experiences treating, evaluating. You know, sometimes our assessments will involve seeing speech. You know, did they talk to a counselor? We'll reach out to the teachers. We'll reach out to the OTs. And so we do our best to make it more of a collaborative effort of diagnosis in this this office. But I would ask, you know, a clinician, You know, is it just going to be you evaluating or is there going to be somebody else? You know, even having a technician assist with testing can be very helpful because it's still a second set of eyes and opinion on that child.
1: So, so far what I'm hearing, just to kind of sum it up for our audience, is you want to find a clinician that has a good history and training in diagnosing autism that works preferably in a team. And then also we're looking for repeated and overlapping and autism-specific diagnostic measures.
2: And you know, I think that's also a good rule of thumb on psychological evaluation in general is no diagnosis should really be provided based on one test alone, because every test has its, has its strengths and weaknesses. A good evaluation is going to involve multiple levels of assessment, and you're looking for something that we call convergent validity. So these tests are all kind of convening and pointing toward similar explanations of behavior. So one of the complaints I have heard from, from our testing, our testing is very in-depth, is it's a lot of tests. You know, are some of these redundant? And they're not. We're, we're trying to make sure that we're assessing that convergent validity really, really well for, for accuracy.
0: I think with testing, people don't realize, like, how many different aspects. Like, being a speech therapist, you know, there's one um, language test I really like because it allows me to break language down, not just into what can you understand and what can you say, but into like vocabulary, into concepts and how you understand the relationships between words. Can you build a sentence if you're given a word? Can you build a sentence if you're given every word, but you have to move them? Like, I like, I like getting that because it gives me more of that in-depth look um, with that testing. So I think like people don't realize like how helpful it is to really break down those different aspects of, um, even if it just seems like one simple thing that you're looking at, there's so many different little things in there that it's better to kind of go ahead and look through everything first. I think that makes good sense. I mean, um, people with
1: autism or autistics often display splinter skills or asynchronous skill development. So um, I think it's important to isolate and test so that you don't make assumptions about. What part of a skill, when broken down, can they or can they not do? And that may even be used not only for treatment purposes or developing good curriculum, but also I can see where that might be helpful in diagnostics when you're looking at breaking skills down
2: and seeing um, how their brain is breaking that skill down. I love IQ testing for that reason, and especially if we've done all of the autism measures and. And this happens occasionally, and we're very on the fence over, I don't know, is this autism, is it not? I can see lots of different explanations. I will often look to the IQ test and say, well, do we have some splinter skills? Do we have our classic cognitive profile of autism? And sometimes it really is that IQ testing or the achievement testing that really helps, you know, helps our diagnostic decision making.
1: That's good to know. So at the risk of getting a little controversial... It's the first (laughs) episode, Holly. It's the first I I don't want to make anybody mad. I have to ask. (laughs) The people want to know, what causes autism? That is
0: such a loaded question, but it's not rain.
1: Oh, dear.
0: Cannot emphasize this enough. It is not rain. It's not
1: rain. Maybe I should rephrase. I've never heard of that one. What Uh, causes autism and why is it not vaccines?
2: Yes. I like that we're just jumping right on into it. It's genetics. Always
0: addresses.
2: <laughs> it is genetics, and what I will say about the vaccines, and I, I do I have so much empathy for for when parents really do see that you know my child was fine one day we went in for our vaccines we had this high fever boom autism I, I really do have empathy and I do believe that that is the pattern that they saw. Um we have enough genetic data to show that it is linked to the genetic code. And you know, we don't have it, you know, narrowed down into it is this it is this gene, this gene, and this gene. And if you know these are flipped on, then boom you have autism. We don't have the science there. We do know though that some kids are more at risk for it. Now, this what I'm about to say right now, this is Megan Chrysler's, you know, theories. This has not been tested but you know i do firmly believe that there's probably something along the lines of epigenetics in play where perhaps somebody is predisposed to having autism the the vaccines i mean i've watched it in my own children you know they did spike fevers and you know we had a rough day i know for a fact if my kids are getting shots i'm not going to work that day you know i'm staying home and giving them cuddles it's going to be a little rough um, but with epigenetics, we do know that certain injuries and sicknesses can flip on genes. Mm-hmm. We also know that right around that 18-month time in the brain, there is a cascade of social language changes that are occurring, and there's just a lot of activity going on, and so right around this time, we're having these shots take place too. and I don't want to go so far as to say it's all coincidence and happenstance because I do believe these parents when they say one day we're fine and one day we're not. But there's enough science to say it's not the shots.
0: Because I was, I was about to say autism doesn't usually I, – it doesn't just develop day one. It's not – it doesn't typically develop I, – I don't want to say, like, 12 to 18 months, but, like, I don't feel like, from what I've heard from most people – Especially from a communication side, which, even if children aren't speaking yet, they're still communicating in some way. From a communication side, I hear a lot more of, they start talking at nine months, and then there's a regression, and they stop talking, and, like...
2: Yeah, and they've even got some really cool studies that look at the regressions as, you know, if, if you look at the... the um... The diagnostic guides and you know, core symptoms of autism. Regression is not even highlighted as, hey, look for this. I mean, we know that there's something there going on with regressions, but they've done some retroactive studies where in these kids that were reported as having regressions, they've done some video studies and the researchers still find the symptoms of autism far earlier than the parents noted. Mm-hmm. So to say that the children were all perfectly developing and then boom one day they weren't we've got some studies that suggest otherwise yeah and that i know that gets really challenging for a Mm -hmm. lot of people to hear
1: i don't think anyone here is denying that vaccine injury has occurred and occurs there's a foundation for it you get a piece of paper from your pediatrician uh, with the correct people to contact if you suspect your child has had a vaccine injury Uh, But up until this point, science has supported vaccines as safe and not linked to the development of autism. And Megan Z, what you were saying about autism just not suddenly developing, I mean, we know that from brain scans, that a person with autism's brain is configured in such a
2: way that your brain doesn't reorganize itself. And the other piece, too, you know, and this is, again, just observation, but we've got studies that are the points of this, too is time and time again, I will have kids in my office where, yes, I'm diagnosing autism, and then we're talking about the symptoms of autism, and the parents start saying, well, that's how I am. Well, that's how I was as a kid. So they didn't think anything of it. They didn't think anything of it, but yet when people start talking about vaccines, they just talk about how many more vaccines the children have these days than they had 30 years ago, but yet we're still recognizing the symptoms in the parents, too. Like, it's it can't all be... It just can't be the vaccines. Yeah. All right. So
1: summing it up for our audience, <laughs> it's autism, not vaccines. Autism is genetic. Mm-hmm. They have identified specific genes, and researchers are still looking into what might be the cause of what we would think of as regressive autism, where symptoms appear more suddenly to parents. Um, what next?
0: Megan? Megan Z, what direction are we going next? Um, I mean, I guess just to like tie tie a bow on that just really quickly, what would you say would be the earliest time that you
2: would feel comfortable diagnosing autism in a child? So that is a loaded question. That's also going to vary based on clinician. Um, My, so let me, let me phrase it this way. The ADOS itself has been normed and used, I shouldn't say normed, but no, it has been normed. It has been used in children as young as 12 months and it is being studied in kids younger than that. Um, Personally, the youngest that I have ever used it has been 12 months. My personal comfort level, you know, if I'm seeing signs of autism in a 12 month old, I'm still, if I do label it as anything, I will probably throw a provisional diagnosis on there and say we still need to watch. so 12 months gets to be really the, the hard and fast. I'm not going younger than that because I haven't been trained younger than that. Um, still most comfortable, though, is really when the kids start hitting 16, 17, 18 months. That is, that is a really good time. Um, this, you know, and there's so much we can do with early intervention if we do diagnose and catch it that early. And, you know, one of the screening measures that we use a lot is the MCHAT. And r- the real cutoff for the MCHAT is if you have three symptoms or more. And that's really what, you know, pushes you into the, well, let's go ahead and test. So I would argue if you're a parent and you're worried and you're seeing two or three symptoms, you know, reduced eye contact, um, not using, you know, much language or you're concerned about the language, and then the play skills tend to be a little bit more rigid, I say go ahead and test. Like, the testing's fun for the kids. It's usually, you know, and if we can identify it early and get, get them hooked into services, all the better better
0: Better prognosis Miriam I don't mean to put you on the spot but um you know given given kind of you've said that you know you've just learned about like the pie chart Mm -hmm. kind of um, analogy or metaphor whatever is a better thing to call it recently I wanted to know kind of what have you seen as far as like differences in presentation with your clients who are on the spectrum. Um, I think there's like a ton of different ways it can present, but I just wanna know some of the things that you've learned from your experiences. So some of the most common things that I see, um, I'm mostly thinking
3: about the teenage age group and then young adults right now because that's the bulk of what I see with autism as a primary diagnosis. Um, I definitely see rigid thinking, rigid thinking patterns, social skill deficits, interpersonal conflict, interpersonal relationship concerns, um, some difficulty relating to friends or family members or teacher or other important people in my client's life. So my approach to that is I'm really a therapist who likes to balance out like what are the theories that I can use like CBT or DBT, but also I really want to honor a client focused approach. So I try and do both of those things. And I think that taking it slow too, meaning letting myself learn with the client is important. I also try and provide a lot of psychoeducation because new information is still coming out and the definitions are changing. So I want to give as much as I can in those situations to my client. But yeah, those would be some of the most common things that I see.
0: Sure. Um, and I would, I mean, I would say that's probably pretty accurate as far as adult mm-hmm. clients that I know of. I know that, um, you know, some have maybe what we would call more severe symptoms. Um, but there's a ton of differences in presentation that I didn't know either. In grad school, there was an optional autism class. And guess what? I did not take. Um, I was
3: thinking about that. I When I was in grad school, I don't think we spent much time covering autism. And I look back and I think... I mean, and I, I went to a great program, but I'm like, what a disservice, because this is so much of what I see now. Yeah. I wish I had learned more.
2: And just to interject there, and I don't want to speak for, for this particular um, set of clinicians, but I have heard that even from pediatricians, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's often who parents are going to first. Yeah. I've heard them say that their, their focus on autism was grouped into a developmental disability yes. seminar that was half a day. And I'm not saying that's true for all pediatricians, but I'm saying I have heard that from some. So,
0: Sure. And I think think for my clients, I see younger clients than you do. I have a couple of teens here and there, um, but more so I'm seeing more of the pediatric, Mm -hmm. the little bitties. Mm -hmm. um, And a lot more of them, they do have that social language delay, but it looks a little different. It maybe is how they're engaging you in play, whether that means they're engaging you in play a lot or not at all. It can look like either. Um, it can look like too much eye contact or not enough. It's very rarely just never not enough. I think a lot of people just assume that that's like the mark to go by. Um, another one is like sensory, um, kind of the draw to different sensory things, whether they're sensory seeking or sensory avoidant. Mm-hmm. Um, I see a lot of I see a lot of anywhere in the middle, <laughs> on one side, on the other, or anywhere in between. Um, Let's see, this
1: difference in presentation where it could be too much eye contact, it could be not enough mm-hmm. eye contact, that's why you need a great clinician <laughs> that knows autism. Mm-hmm.
2: And, you know, and something about that, too, is that also just makes even the discussion of it so difficult because if we're saying that it's the eye, I'm going to pick on eye contact, for instance, the eye contact is different. Um, a, a good clinical term we'll use is, it's atypical. You know, it's either too much or too little. Um, the social interest is atypical. It's either too much or too little.
0: Too friendly
2: or, or not enough. Not enough. Yeah. And atypical can, that can be offensive, you know, to some people. And so tip around this, you know, sometimes we want to say differences. And I think sometimes that can lead to, you know, misunderstandings and miscommunications too. And it's 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 hard to talk about.
1: I love how you phrase that, that using the term atypical can be offensive to some because that's a great segue into my next question about relating to symptoms of autism in isolation, mm. but not actually having autism. I'm talking to
0: you, TikTok creators. Can I go first? Can I go first? Uh, I go first? <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. So let me let me specify this. Is first off, I am neurodivergent. I'm so sorry. Um, so I, I have ADHD. I was diagnosed this year. No, last year whenever i was trying to sometime recently who knows when not me um so okay so here's the thing um like we've said before is that the way that the brain processes is processes information it's an actual structural change and it's a structural change between adhd it's a structural change with autism as well so my adhd affects kind of how i take in the world and process the world around me it's the same thing with autism in a different way, obviously. Um, now that being said, I still have a human brain. Um, and so do people with autism. Them processing information differently with a human brain does not mean that those things that they are experiencing are not relatable to you. Mm -hmm. Because I know that I've said a lot, I'll go, oh, well, I struggle with this, this, and this. And people are like, oh, me too. Maybe I have ADHD. And number one, maybe you do, but also very possible is that we both have human brains. There are things that are difficult for you and also difficult for me, but the amount of difficulty is very different between you and I, or how much I have to experience that difficulty is very different. And it's not this quirky, cute little thing that I do. Um, It's just something that I have a really hard time with, actually. And I think it's the same way for autism, is that people go, Oh, well, I can relate to that. And, like, maybe you can. And that's because people who are autistic are not aliens. They are humans. They have human brains that process and prioritize information differently than yours. And there's nothing wrong with questioning whether or not you're on the spectrum and looking into it. But relating to what they're experiencing and experiencing the same thing are not, not necessarily the same thing.
2: I would agree with this entirely. Yeah. I thought about it I a little bit I, and you know one thing I hear a lot is I'm, I'm gonna pick on sensory I'm gonna pick on sensory overload oh, <laughs> <I haven't. laughs> because we see sensory overload in ADHD we see it in autism we see it in anxiety disorders mm-hmm. and it can look so similar in every little condition um, I know one of the things I have seen on TikTok a lot. I've seen a number of things. TikTok is easy to pick on. Is lately it's been the cricketing of the feet. I don't know if y'all yes. have heard about that. I okay, no I am a big cricketer of my feet. Okay, Holly's demonstrating. Oh, <laughs> if, keep you, if you haven't seen this, <laughs> look it up. It's interesting. And people are like, do you do this? You have autism. I've seen it said, do you do this? You have ADHD. I do it. I have anxiety. It, it's it is a sensory feature but it is not a diagnostic criteria marker.
0: And a lot of people who have autism or who have ADHD develop anxiety. <laughs> so also, like I, I know that I'm a leg bouncer for sure. That's like one of my things. And I have to even ask myself, is it because I'm anxious right now or is it because I'm not like focusing enough and something needs to move? Like I don't, and I don't always know how to answer that question, but people will see my leg bounce and go, oh, you, you nervous right now? And I'm like, who knows? But <laughs> I, I have both of those things, and they contribute to each
2: other, but they don't, not, they don't equate to one another. I'll say this about TikTok. In defense of it, yes. what I have We're really appreciated, absolutely not. I, I learned so many things on TikTok. But what I appreciate about it is I think it has made people really try to take stock of their mental health. And try to understand, why do I do this? Maybe I can do this better. How can I adjust? I, I think that's been the really great piece of it, especially through COVID and the pandemic. The flip side is, we, I think we do have a lot of people who are just over-medicalizing, over-diagnosing themselves. And there's just a lot of nuance.
0: I think, honestly, the bottom line then is, like, you know, if you have questions, seek help. Yeah. Seek support from your community. Find local clinicians who are qualified to support you we're not there to harsh your day we're there to give you answers to questions you that's may exactly, have about find answers yeah we're that's what we're there for is because we've studied that we've gone to school for it we're trying to stay update on the research about objective it. measurable answers yes
2: and I have I have a question this is really more for for you Miriam you know, I, I experience this when I do evaluation of adults, where the adult is really upset with what I have said, and it does not, my diagnosis does not match whatever they have really internalized yeah. as their identity, because they came in with a preconceived notion. Yeah. My understanding is that counseling is a great next step, not to come to terms with the diagnosis necessarily, but just to understand... You know, why somebody would say something else and how they feel about it. Can you speak to that?
3: Yeah, I mean, I'm a big believer that information is simply power. Like how can you use this information to your benefit so even if it doesn't fit into what you thought you would get at the end of your diagnostic process, it can still be useful. And I was taught this in grad school, that sometimes using the language of diagnosis is not always a label. You don't have to take on that label if you don't want to, but it can still help you. I like that a lot. Yeah, I sometimes use that approach, and also like validating those concerns can be important too, because it can be really confusing and overwhelming to get answers, even if that's what you were expecting in the first place. So just kind of taking the time to process it and be there to explore anything and everything that comes up in counseling is a great next step.
0: Well said. I had some hardcore, still have some hardcore imposter syndrome about being diagnosed as an adult. Mm -hmm. Um, but, and I hate to cut us off here, but we do have to kind of wrap it up for this episode. So I think honestly, with everything we've said today, all of which was, I think, really good information. Thank you both to Dr. Crisler and Miriam for coming and being guests today. Um, I wanna say that ultimately, whether you relate to someone who's on the spectrum or you know someone or you are someone who is autistic, please treat each other with kindness. Learn more about how symptoms can kind of um, manifest in people and you know, give people grace. I think it's really hard to do sometimes these days, but if you see someone out in public, and maybe they're having a meltdown, maybe you don't whip out your phone and take a video, Things like that. Try to try to learn more about people's um, mental health and also the psychological aspect of things and how it may present, because at the end of the day, I think that's a huge part of being human is learning to treat other types of humans with kindness. Especially when you can relate. Yeah. To All, their feelings. The more the merrier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I I think the biggest step, like you said, is education is power. Yeah. Learning more is really the first step to supporting people, whether it's yourself or teaching other people how to support you or learning how to support other people around you. Um and I think there's a lot of good kind of resources out there that we can kind of recommend probably through our website and things like that or even attached to this episode as links for people to follow. If you follow us on Facebook or anything that you can access. Um, but I think that's where we'll call it today. I mean, we could do so many more we might have to podcasts have a part about
1: this very subject because it's just extensive and interesting and is affecting so much of our population. Um, but yeah, I agree. I think we've... Uh, beefed up today's episode with quite a lot to process for our audience maybe a part two coming soon we'll see yeah stay stay tuned (laughs) stay tuned for more about autism which i suppose would be a special interest for all of us here at silver linings
0: (laughs) i was about to say there's always a silver lining good one nice thanks